1: In 1991, somewhere on I-5 near Kalama, Washington, a terrible accident between a tractor trailer and a semi-truck took the lives of two people. The driver of the tractor trailer was quickly identified as 26-year-old Lester Harville, but his passenger, a young woman, has remained unidentified to this day. She was a Jane Doe for a while, but was eventually given the name Helen Doe because the location of the crash is pretty close to Mount St. Helens but who was she really? Let's try to find out on this episode of Washed Away. So this is an interesting case to me, just in kind of how unique it is, I I feel. It's not, you know, a murder. It's not a suicide. There wasn't necessarily anything nefarious going on. It was just a tragic accident, right?
0: That's correct. Yeah. And it's I think a lot of people are like, well, why try to work so hard on this case when there wasn't a crime? But there's still a victim. She may not be a victim of a crime, right? But she's still a victim of this crash and the circumstances she was in. So it's it's different than most, but it's still just as important, I think.
1: That's Detective Sergeant Stacy Moat from the Washington State Patrol that I'm talking to you there. She spent the last few years giving interviews, going on TV, doing everything she can to try and get Helen Doe identified. Here's some backstory. On May 14th, 1991, Lester Harville had made his way to Washington. He was a truck driver from Missouri that hit quite a few states on his route across the west side of the country. Near Mount St. Helens, Lester got stuck in traffic on the highway, and it must have been sudden because he was rear-ended by a semi that wasn't able to stop in time. Unfortunately, Lester's truck was hauling paper, and after the gas tank blew, the whole thing immediately went up in flames there was no time for Lester to get out. When rescue crews arrived on the scene, they found that Lester wasn't alone in his cab. There was another body badly burned by the flames, the body of a woman. The trucking company that Lester worked for had no record of a passenger, or no passengers had been authorized anyway. So it's assumed that Lester had picked up a hitchhiker, something that he had been known to do in the past.
0: Yeah, so when the Crash occurred. We knew who the driver was because the company um, was able to tell us who he was, and they provided us with the fuel receipts that showed where he left from in Missouri and then all the fuel stops he made along the way right up until the time of the crash. So we were able to track his route. Um, from Missouri through Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon, and into Washington. We don't know at what point he picked up um, Helen Doe, but we know it had to have been somewhere along that route
1: that he took. I feel like our thoughts on hitchhiking have changed a lot since 1991, but for a lot of people, that was their only way of getting around. Hitchhiking in the United States became common during the Great Depression, but the Stranger Danger Panic in the 1980s kind of made hitchhiking a thing of the past for most people. I've never done it personally, and I kind of assume that hitchhiking was against the law these days, but I guess there are still some ways to legally hitchhike if you want, at least according to the info I found online. So hitchhiking in Washington state is technically illegal on highways, and there's a chance you'll be fined if you're caught, but if you hitch a ride along on ramps, that's actually okay. I assume because it's somewhat safer, cars aren't going as fast, they can pull over, that sort of thing. Anyway, back to Helen Doe.
0: So our... MATE team or our major accident investigation team had been handling this one back in 91. And for the few years that followed until really it just went, it became a cold case. They'd run out of leads and things to try to identify her. But when I came back into my current detective unit as the sergeant, one of my detectives had been on the MATE team for years. And so he knew about the case and he was coming close to retirement. And so he really was like, you know, for my last six months in here, I just wanna focus on this. So he worked really hard on that. When he retired, um, I kind of just inherited it from him to continue the work he would started. So that's how it ended up with me. Probably once a year, once every 18 months or so, I go back through all of the missing person databases that are you know, available online to look through to see if somebody new has been added that wasn't there when I went through it the year before. Uh, and you know, that takes a lot of time, but I'm just hopeful that one day somebody will realize, you know, maybe it's time I reported her missing, even though it's been so long. But we just haven't found a match yet.
1: Any ID, purse, wallet, anything she might have had on her burnt up in the fire, along with her fingerprints. But here's what we do know about Helen Doe. She was probably in her 20s, between 5 feet and five four, around 115 pounds, She had high cheekbones, a gap between her front bottom teeth, and severe scoliosis, which means that she probably walked with a limp. Witness accounts claim she was wearing a black cowboy vest and a gray and pink top. They said she had a long, dark ponytail and was wearing multiple accessories, including some rings on her fingers and a feather earring dangling from one ear.
0: There was a couple other truck drivers that had been talking with the driver of the truck Helen Doe was in. They'd been talking over the CB radios, and she'd been waving out the window to them prior to as they were just kind of having a conversation while driving down I-5. And so those witnesses that had stopped at the scene, they were able to provide a description of her appearance, her hair, and her clothing that day. So that was where all that information came from.
1: Wow, that seems so crucial that you know other people saw her and, and could because obviously the driver wasn't able to tell anyone about, you know, what she looked like, or, you know, what her name might have been?
0: Yeah, it was definitely um, an important bit of information to get from those people. And we even talked to them again in 2014. After the sketch was done, we were able to locate a couple of those witnesses and uh, send the sketch to them. And, you know, even though it had been so long since the crash happened, you know, 20 something years, they were still like, you know, I remember this, like it was yesterday, because, As officers, we see crashes like that all the time. But for most witnesses, you see a crash like that once in your lifetime. So it really stuck out in their head. And when we showed them the sketch, they were like, yeah, that's what she looked like. So that was a really um, great opportunity to be able to get that information from them.
1: So Sergeant Moat mentioned a sketch that was done of Helen Doe. That was created by none other than forensic artist Natalie Murray. You heard from her on the Rodney Johnson episode a while back. And I asked Stacey how it felt to finally see that image of Helen's face after all these years.
0: It makes me want even more to identify her, though, because now I want to know, is this really, was this her? Is this what she looked like? And um, so it was pretty neat to see that come to life, because before that, you know, you don't have an image in your head. And you don't have somebody to think about, like, oh, I'm trying to identify this person, but now I have a face I can put in my head when
1: I'm having those thoughts. And as you know, Natalie works off of the actual skull of an unidentified person so that she can find the unique features that help her create a face. And she was able to do that in this case because Helen Doe's remains were exhumed in 2014 and Helen's DNA was also recovered at that time.
0: So in you know, 1991, when she died in the crash, DNA just wasn't really a thing that we you know officers thought about or you didn't, they didn't have the same capabilities that we do today for testing DNA. So in 2014, we realized how important it was to have her remains exhumed so that we could try to get DNA from the bones. Um, and we were successful with that. We have a full DNA profile, which was entered into CODIS, but there was no match in the missing person database in CODIS.
1: If and when a DNA match becomes available, Stacy and her team should be the first to know. But while they wait on that, they're trying some unique ways to bring attention to Helen, including revisiting Lester's truck route, which I think is such a good idea. This is Carrie Gordon. She's the program manager of the Washington State Patrol Missing and Unidentified Persons Unit.
2: I had planned a road trip already to go and see family in Michigan. And then on the route back, Um, what I did was I took the more Southern route, which did add some time onto my travel, but not, not much and nothing too significant. And I love to drive anyway. So it was kind of fell in line with what I would have enjoyed doing anyway, but the truck driver's route that he took started in Missouri. And so I drove South from Michigan to Missouri and started there, spent my first night there and then met with a Missouri highway patrol. Uh, public information officer the next morning and started the process. I met him at one of the truck stops in the area where he was first believed to have uh, purchased fuel. And we went inside and asked the uh, manager if we could post the flyer about this um, unidentified um, Helen Doe. And they were more than willing to let us do that. So we went and did that, took some photos and kind of told our story. And it was great. It was a perfect start. And then I continued along that route and just kind of stopped along the way. And we were hopeful that we would get um, more information than I think what has come out of it. But, you know, that's not to say we couldn't still get some calls later on. It was just a really good opportunity to get out there and meet people and get her photo out there.
1: Another important thing you should know about Helen Doe was that she was likely Native American Indigenous communities and police agencies throughout the United States have had a long history of difficulty when it comes to working together to track just how many Indigenous women are in fact missing. And that's for a multitude of reasons, including misidentification, little to no media coverage, and of course, to be blunt, racism. A lot of Indigenous folks don't trust law enforcement, and they have their own very valid reasons for that. So even when these missing women are found, there's a tricky jurisdictional situation to deal with that requires tribal, federal, state, and county officers to all cooperate with one another, something that obviously hasn't worked great in the past but is hopefully starting to get better as agencies like the Washington State Patrol have begun hiring full-time tribal liaisons. There's also groups like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA that are doing incredible work for families of missing loved ones. You can find out more about their organization at MMIWUSA.org.
2: Right now, there are 51 missing Native American females. And
1: that's for the state of Washington, the whole state?
2: Right. And just just to clarify, too, is those are the ones that have been identified in the system as Native American. Um, we could have still some that have been misidentified um, ethnically for whatever reason, reported as a different race or maybe the officer took the report incorrectly or whatever the case may be.
1: Carrie also cleared up some misinformation for me about filing missing persons reports. Like, do you really have to wait 24 to 48 hours to report a loved one missing?
2: There is no waiting period. Some agencies may have an agency policy that says that, but that's becoming a lot more infrequent than what it used to be. But there is no waiting period per se. It can be entered anytime. And Now with our new state RCW saying, you know, if a person is missing over 30 days, law enforcement is now required to take that entry. And I know 30 days sounds like a long time, but before that law went into place last June, we had nothing to say that they even had to take a report of a missing adult. There was no statute, federal or state that required that. And so now we do have that. And so now if an adult is missing over 30 days, they have to take the report and make the entry, but it can be done at any time prior
1: to that. Make made sure to ask Carrie and Stacey what the public can do to help in this case. And they stress the importance of two things, reports and DNA.
0: If you have a missing family member, whether it matches Helen Doe's description or
1: not, if you have a
0: missing family person, make sure they've been reported missing. And make sure that you get a sample from somebody in the family, somebody's DNA sample into CODIS. Because it might not help this case, but it could help others. There's you know, hundreds of missing people or unidentified remains around the country that just needs somebody to put a DNA sample in so they can make that comparison and send that person home. You know, Helen Doe is sitting in a box in the coroner's office in Cowlitz County, and that doesn't seem right to me. I would love to be able to identify and get her sent home to her family rather than left in a box there. Even if it's 20, 30 years ago and you're like, hey, whatever happened to that aunt or that cousin, you know, it's important to look into it and get them reported missing so that we can get them sent home.
2: If you have a missing loved one and you've never been asked to submit family reference dna ask about that or you know if you're in washington state you can call our unit as well and we can help to facilitate that we have the dna kits in our office and as employees of a law enforcement agency we're able to take those samples as well so it's definitely something that we encourage family members to do or to reach out reach back out to the agency that you reported your missing loved one to, to make sure that the record is still in
1: there and that it's complete, and I'll do some follow-up. If you have any information that could help Stacy and Carrie finally get Helen Doe identified, please contact the Washington State Patrol Cold Case Team at 425-401-7740. Washed Away is a Cosmic Bigfoot production. This podcast is all about cold cases and missing persons. And I always post my show notes, meaning images like the one of Helen Doe, plus transcripts, sources, and more at washedawaypodcast.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at WashedAwayPod. And if you'd like to help this podcast grow and reach new ears, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have a case suggestion for me, send an email to washedawaypodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ashley Smith, and I'll have another episode for you very, very soon.